Okay, well, last week, we started Matthew 8, and we're looking at the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And, um, did anyone tell me anything that stood out to them last, last week the most? accounts of the uh, healing of the centurion servant. Did the centurion literally himself come to, come to Jesus talk to him? Well, who came to him the first time? Who did he send? The Jewish elders first, right? Yeah, and then he was getting close to the house, and then what happened then? No, he didn't come out then either. He sent the servants out then. Yeah. So he never actually literally came to Jesus. As we see in Mark's account, Luke's account, he didn't consider himself worthy to even come to him. So in a literal sense, he didn't come to him. He came to him through other people. I looked at one other example of that in um, the uh, Matthew 20, 20 and Mark 10, 35, where the, uh, James and John's mother came to Jesus and said, Can my son sit at your left and your right? And then the other account of it says that they came to, the, to Jesus. So we know that they came to Jesus through their mother. Kind of had their mother doing their their dirty bidding for them because they maybe were too ashamed to actually just themselves. So they had their mother ask for them. You know, can my son sit your left and your right in your kingdom? And he said, that is not for mine to give. And um, we also looked at what happened at the end of this, this situation with Centurion. Uh, what did Jesus say about his faith? Great. It was great. great. Greater than what? Greater than all of Israel. Greater than any faith he found in Israel. And then he, get, then he talked about many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And we saw, we went through all the parables in Matthew 2, we saw that, that he's referring to the ones coming from the east and west, the Gentiles. And so you have these Jews here who, genealogically speaking, through their descendant line here, they're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's their great, 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 you know, how many generations back, uh, Grandpa. And they think in themselves... Oh, I deserve to be part of the kingdom. I'm definitely going to be there because I'm a Jew. And here's Jesus telling him, listen, you're going to be cast out because you don't have faith. But the centurion, the Gentile, has greater faith than anyone I found in Israel. And all the Gentiles are going to come into the kingdom and you're going to be cast out because what did you do to my prophets? You stoned them. You killed them. You persecuted them. And then you said, my son, surely they won't do this to my son. And what did they do to his son? They killed him too. And the problem with that is that is the link to your inheritance in the kingdom. It's only by being in the Son that you have an inheritance. So if you kill the Son and you want nothing to do with Him, obviously you're not in Him. And you have no inheritance with Him. Because how much of the kingdom will be given to Christ? All of it. So if that part of Him, you have none of it. And you're cast out of the kingdom. Where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness. Now, we looked at different things that hell talked about in hell. Outer darkness, flames. Now, do we know exactly what hell is like? No, not exactly. We don't know if, if maybe all of its meta, uh, its metaphors, or maybe none of its metaphors, will offer the solutions like maybe the the fire is so hot you can't even see it because there's that kind of heat. And um, we know that our flesh that we have now, this can be burned up. If fire gets on this, I'll burn up and it'll go away. And it won't come back. If I get all the burned up, it won't come back. But we know in, the, in, the, in hell, your flesh, it may burn up, it may not burn up, but you're going to have flesh forever. You're going to have a glorified body. So it'll never be destroyed. So, but when it comes to hell, what do we know about hell? It has fire. Okay. Never ends. It's a big place. Torment. Torment? Whatever kind of way torment is inflicted upon the people there, you don't want to take part in it. It's worse than anything you can imagine on earth. Whatever kind of torment you endure on earth, it will end at some point in time. In your death. And we also talked about um, healing. Uh, does God always want us to be healed while we're here on earth? 
That couldn't be true because we what do we end up doing eventually? We die. We die. So it kind of disproves these these false teacher running data says if if you're not healed, is it because you lack faith or you have sin in your life? Now those could be possible solutions to the problem. But not all times. Maybe God doesn't want to heal you. Maybe he doesn't want to heal you. And finally we looked at the uh the quoting of Isaiah 53, 4, and verse 17 here, where he talks about he took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, which I told you was a picture of the kingdom to come, which will get the full benefits of the atonement. Right now, we get t- part of the benefit of the atonement, which is forgiveness of sins. But the full benefit of the atonement is that we'll have a resurrected body, a glorified body. And we get that, not just because Christ died on the cross, but because of what? What did he do after that? Rose from the grave. And if he didn't raise, we would not be raised. In fact, Paul said, if, we, if Christ didn't raise from the grave, your faith is futile. It's in vain. And we are above all men most to be pitied if Christ didn't rise from the grave. He didn't rise from the grave. And then 1 Corinthians talks about him appearing to Peter and John first, and then the disciples, and then 500 people at one time. So when people try to say, well, maybe Christ really didn't rise from the grave, maybe his disciples just having hallucinations, you know. He appeared to ten of them at one time before Thomas was there, and then Thomas again later on, and then he prayed to 500. Now, scientifically speaking, it's impossible for 500 people to have a delusion all at one time. So it kind of disproves this theory that people try to promote that maybe these guys just haven't, they were just seeing things. It really wasn't really Christ rising from the grave. They were just seeing things. 500 people at one time saw him. 40 days. But 40 days is how long he was there. He didn't stay with 540 days, but he was, yeah, 40 days he appeared, and then he ascended to heaven. With the right hand of the Father. So we see a picture of, of Jesus giving us a little glimpse by healing people of what the kingdom will be like. Will there be no more sickness, no more pain for those who are part of his kingdom and who aren't cast out into the lower parts of his kingdom, the worst parts of his kingdom, which is hell, where the least shall go. Those who break his commandments and teach others to do so. And we saw earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. They will be a part of that kingdom, that part of his kingdom. Okay, today we're going to go through, we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 8. So let's start with verse 18. And let's read. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. Now when he got into a boat, the disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. And he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the man marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. He said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. And those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Okay, so in verse 18, we see Jesus dealing with a great multitude of people. And what we're going to see here is Jesus isn't always concerned with having large crowds. Because what did he do? He departed from them, went across the sea. He wasn't really concerned about, oh, you know, and this is something for us open-air preachers to consider, not just us here, but those who are listening through videotape, that the end of an open-air meeting isn't a large crowd. And I think some open-air preachers have that in their mind. Well, if I get a large crowd, I've been successful. No, not necessarily. Sometimes, if you have a large crowd, you see two people in the, in the crowd who are really listening, they want to talk to you one-on-one, maybe you should just talk to them one-on-one. 
and stop dealing with the hundred mockers who don't really care what you have to say. So there isn't some kind of spiritual uh, pinnacle here that if I have a large crowd, I'm doing great. If I have a small crowd, I'm doing bad. If I'm doing one-on-one, I'm doing bad. If I had a large crowd, I'm doing good. We need to be led by the Spirit. Simply as that. And there'll be times where God will lead you to just do one-to-ones. And time he'll lead you just to pass out tracts. And there'll be times that he'll lead you to open air preach. But we can't have this idolatry of the large crowd. And I think I've seen a lot of open air preach too. And, and the, the, uh, the, uh, the discouragement of getting a small crowd. That's not always what matters. What matters is you're ministering to people that God wants you to minister to. That's what matters. So he departed to the other side. He left the multitudes and departed to the other side. And then, then a certain scribe came to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this is interesting here because a scribe, they were the experts in the law. Uh, they were the interpreters. They were the teachers. They were the ones who added to the Mosaic law. And let's turn to Matthew 15 just for a second here. Let's see what Jesus had to say about these who added to his law. Um, Matthew 15, it'll start in verse 1. So then the scribes, that's who he's talking to back here in Matthew 8, the scribes and Pharisees were, who were from Jerusalem came to you saying, why do you disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? No, it's not transgress the word of God. Transgress the tradition of the elders. For they did not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, Whatever profit you might have received of me is, is a gift to God, then he need not to honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching us doctrines to the commandments of men. So it's kind of surprising that a man who is part of this group of teaches uh, traditions of men as doctrines of God, commandments of God, which nullifies the work of God in someone's life, that he's coming to Jesus and say, I will follow you wherever I go. And I, I think we can see Jesus peering into uh, the heart of the scribe with how he responds here. He says, and Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And we don't know for sure, but maybe he's peering into the scribe's heart here and saying, if you're trying to come to me so you can get some kind of benefits from it, some material benefits from coming to Christ, you're coming for the wrong reason. I have nowhere to lay my head. Birds of the air have nests. Foxes have dens or holes to, to, to live in. I have nowhere. So if you're going to follow me, you're going to benefit from it materially, Wrong reason to follow me. And it goes directly against the prosperity gospel preachers of this day who will say, uh, you know, God wants me to be rich. God wants me to have large houses and nice cars and all this money and a jet plane to fly around in. And I'm updating my false-teachers.com website recently. I'm redoing the whole site and uh, making it something that's going to last because, you know, those YouTube videos I put on there on different pages for like Fredbull Dollar and for Benny Hinn, those ministries would come behind YouTube and them, get them taken down. So I've always had to update the website. So now I'm downloading the videos. I'm going to upload to my own website, and they can't take them down now. But these guys, I listened to one with Creflo Dollar was talking to someone recently in an interview, and a guy said, well, there's lots of Christians who are concerned about the way you're, you're doing things. You know, that point that Jesus looked, he had nowhere to lay his head, he wasn't rich, didn't have lots of money, and he said, this is his response. Well, Jesus didn't have a TV ministry. Well, maybe, maybe Jesus wants you to have a TV ministry if you're doing the work of God, but that doesn't mean you have to be rich. Pay for the TV ministry and use the rest of the money to give away to the poor and help other someone out. What's that got to do with you being rich? Maybe the TV ministry costs some money, but put the money into that and then don't take any more or give it away. What's that got to do with you having a Rolls Royce or 10,000 square foot home in three different places around the U.S. and have a million dollar jet? What's that got to do with that? Nothing to do with that. So this goes directly against, Jesus was poor. He was not rich. Yes, he did support 12 followers for three years, which takes some money. And there was a treasurer named Judas who stole from it. So they did have some money, but he wasn't using it for houses. He wasn't using it for the nicest, horse, nicest horses to travel around in. He walked from place to place. Like the only time I remember Jesus ever being on an animal was on a donkey. Coming into Jerusalem as a king 
And kings don't come on donkeys. It tells you how humble a king he is. So he's peering into this, this man's heart. I think he would peer into the, the false teacher's heart of these days. Listen, if you think you're following to get you rich, you're, you're off. You're off. As I'm reviewing these things I'm going to upload to my website, it, it just blows my mind the things they say just to get the money out of your pocket. You know, we watched that Crepo Dollar clip that really the, the, the key to getting into heaven is the tithe. And the key to salvation is the tithe. The key to the blessing of God is the tithe. Crepo Dollar has Evander Holyfield going to his church. He sat down with Evander Holyfield one year and, and he was talking about things and Evander was saying, yeah, I'm obeying God here, here, and here. But in one year he wasn't obeying God and it was a tithe. And he said, as soon as I started obeying God, God started blessing me more. Now, that was just his testimony. And he talked to the news reporter and said, one, after one fight I gave $3.5 million to the church. From one fight, so that was a tie from that, that event. He must have won thirty-five million dollars, I guess, from that one boxing fight. And um, so this this is a rebuke in my mind to these false teachers who think that it's all about being rich and money. They fall into the the American dream, which is get as much as you can while you can, and store up your treasures on earth instead of in heaven. What's the exact opposite? Of what Jesus says. The American dream is the exact opposite of what the Bible says. But we don't follow the American dream. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Then another of his disciples. So this it says another of his disciples. So that means the scribe was actually a learner of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a student of Jesus. He was following him around. And then another of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So I don't think this man is saying here, my father just died. Let me go hold the service for him and I'll be right back. No, I think what he's saying here is, let me wait till my father dies. Because in Jewish tradition, and in America most times too, the father dies, the son gets the inheritance. So Jesus has talked about, listen, you're not going to get any kind of material benefits from me. And I was saying, well, well, that's true, God. Let me go get my inheritance from my father first, and then I'll come follow you. Because then I can be comfortable while I'm following you. And what Jesus is saying here, listen, listen. If I'm calling you to follow me, whatever I call you to do, I will provide for you to do it. If God calls you to go to Africa, He'll provide for you to go there. The only thing you need to consider is, is God really calling me to go there or not? Because if He is, you know, if ands, buts, or that, it may come in the last second, then He'll come in. He'll provide. In some way, shape, or form. And His, and his response to him, He says, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, can physically dead people bury physically dead people? He's saying, let the spiritually dead, those who don't know me, because eternal life, according to John 17, 3, is knowing God the Father and when he has sent. That's what eternal life or spiritual life is, to know Jesus and know the Father. He's saying, those who don't know me, let them bury the dead. Let them wait around for an inheritance. But you, let's go, let's just go to Luke 9, we get the, the full, what he says here. Luke 9, Luke gives a little bit more here. Luke 9, and we're starting in verse 60. Through 62, he, he records some things that, that Matthew didn't record. So in Luke 9, 60, Jesus says, let's repeat that last verse we just read here, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. So let the spiritually dead, let them worry about material things, let them worry about claiming inheritance, but you, Matthew 6, 33, all over again, go preach the kingdom of God. Seek first his, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things you need will be given to you. So, one guy, Jesus is putting them on to the, his, the people who were following his disciples. Now, this is the 12 here, just these regular disciples who are following him and learning from him. He hasn't even called all 12 yet. He's, he's saying, Listen, let the dead bear, let the spiritually dead worry about inheritance. You go preach about the kingdom of God and worry about the, the even more important inheritance. Because the inheritance that you get on earth is going to moth and rust will destroy it. Thieves will break in and steal. But the inheritance that I give you, part of my kingdom, if you're in me and following me, no one can steal that from you. You can give it away if you want, but no one can take it from you. No one can force it out of your hand. Now if they put a gun to your head, can they force it out of your hand? And in Luke 9, 61, another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. So we're kind of taking a progression here. 
First the guy, well, maybe he wants to get some kind of benefits from Jesus by following him. No, it's not going to happen. So that guy said, well, let me go find my benefits from my, my relatives. This guy simply saying, let me go say farewell to them. And we don't know where he lives. He probably lives a, a way off. He wants to go back to his house and then come back. It might take a week to go back. We don't really know how far away this guy is. But listen to what Jesus says to him. No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't saying it's so wrong. That, I mean, if you're, if you're in the front yard and Jesus calls you to go somewhere, it's not wrong to say, bye-bye, see you later. He's saying, listen, if you're putting your, plow, your hand to the plow and you turn back, you're reconsidering whether you really want to follow me or not. You're not fit for the kingdom. You put your hand in the plow and you keep on going for the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus expects you to do. So Jesus isn't coming against saying bye to your family. He's he's peering once again, I think, to this man's this other man's heart and saying, Are you reconsidering following me? Is that what you're doing? You put your hand in the plow, you keep it to the plow. Okay, so let's go back to Matthew 8. Okay. Before we start reading verse 23 through, 30, uh, 23 through 27, I want to give you some kind of facts about the Sea of Galilee here. Okay? The Sea of Galilee, you might have maps in the back of your body, you can look at it later, but it's, it has a harp shape to it. Okay? His other names is given in the Bible. It's given the name Sea of uh, Chinnereth or Chinnereth, which is Hebrew for harp shaped. That's the that's the Hebrew name for it. It's called the Sea of Tiberias in the Bible. It's called the Sea of Gennesaret or the Lake of Gennesaret. It's also called the Lake and the Sea. So it's called once again Hebrew Chinnereth Chinnereth which both mean harp-shaped, which is the shape. If you look at your map in the back, you'll see it's kind of a harp-shaped, a big harp we're talking about. Now, one of those ones you see on the angels of the clouds plucking with the big harps. Uh, it's called the sea, uh, sea of Tiberias, the Lake of Gennesaret, and the Lake and the Sea in the Bible. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. Okay? So if you were to go out to the Mediterranean Sea, which is right off the coast of Jerusalem, and you took a tape measure... They went straight across, level, towards uh, the, the uh, Sea of Galilee. Once you got to the Sea of Galilee, you have to go 700 feet down to reach the tip of the water. 700 feet below sea level. The reason it's able to do it is it has, has, basically has cliffs, mountains all around it. Or at least big hills all around it. That are above the 700 feet mark. Uh, the max depth of the lake is 150 feet. It's 8 miles wide at its max width. 13 miles long at its max length. These are just, you don't have to, you want these on, that's fine, but these are just facts I'm giving you, these interesting facts. The Jordan River is on both sides of it, and at the north part of the Jordan River, what's that? I was just going to ask, that that's north and south end of the lake, right? Yeah, Jordan River is on north and south end of the lake, and it, the water that comes into the lake comes from Mount Hermon. It, the snow from Mount Hermon flows down to the Jordan River, and that goes into the lake. That's how it gets this water. Uh, due to the height around the, of the hills around it, 1,200 to 1,500 feet of, around it, all around the lake, it has abrupt temperature shifts, which can cause sudden and violent storms. So what we're about to read about was not an uh, uncommon thing. It happens quite often in the Sea of Galilee, because the wind comes right over top of it, and they have violent storms. Um, there's a good climate around it. Fertile soil, lots of water, which means many people decide to stay there. Lots of fruit trees, good fruit trees, lots of fishing going on there, even to this day. There's 40 species of fish in there, lots of different fish. It's fresh water. And all around the, the, the sea, there's natural hot mineral springs, which make the air into a natural spa. So if you can deal with these sudden, violent storms, it's a nice place to live, from what I understand. Let's read and see what happened here. Verse 23. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. Suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. So the word covered here means literally you couldn't see it. It was hidden. That's how bad the storm was. It was like it was in between the waves. You couldn't see it. And if you look at Mark's account, in Mark 5.37, it says the boat was filling up with water. And so they're literally almost about to perish. They're in danger here. Disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. 
But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now they were used to these storms. They had seen these things before. They were fishermen, most of them. They had seen these things happen before. But what they weren't used to was an all of a sudden great calm. Storms don't shh and there's a little bit of a, you know, it kind of calms down a little like this. And, but when a storm, all of a sudden, nothing. They were amazed by that. Who is this man who even the winds and the sea obey him? And that's what they were astonished. And I think, once again, we see a picture of the kingdom of God. I don't think there's going to be these kind of violent storms in, in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The world's going to be at peace once again. There won't be those things. So they were used to these storms, but they weren't used to this immediate calm that they experienced with Jesus. And then we see the account of the two demon-possessed men. Now we're going to look at the, the Luke account here. And the Luke and the Mark account of this demon-possessed men is the same, basically the same exact thing. So we're not going to look at Mark, we're just going to look at Luke. After we read through this again. And there's going to be some differences here. So what I want to do, I want you to listen to me read from verse 28 to 34. I want you to pay attention to details. And then we're going to go to Luke. I want you to pay and see if you see any differences. And I want you to tell me what those differences are. Okay? And we'll go to Luke chapter 8, 26 through 39. That's where it's found. So we're going to go we're going to read Matthew 8 first. I'm read through one more time. I'm going to see how much you can pick up on this different here. When Jesus had come to the other side, the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So a demon begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. They said to them, Go. So they went. They come, so when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. And those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they had saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Okay, let's go to Luke's account. I want to see if you can pick up any of the differences here, or maybe added details. Because when we're studying the Word of God, and you find the same story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or even in John sometimes, there might be differences, but the question is, do they contradict themselves? The Bible is going to be harmonized, which means the Bible will come together properly and it will fit together like it's supposed to. So we're going to see how we can harmonize this, starting in verse uh, 26 of Luke chapter 8. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him, that he would not command them to go into the abyss. They heard of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened, and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also who had, who had seen it told them by what means he had been demon-possessed was healed. And the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they received with great fear. They got into the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city, what great things Jesus had done for him. Okay. So tell me what difference you saw there. Daniel? There was one man in Luke and two men in Matthew. One man in Luke, two in Matthew. Very good. And 
It says that he was enchanted and chained and in Matthew it doesn't say that. Right, so it's added details there, which is good. And added details he was actually in chains and he, he would break them. They, the chains couldn't hold them. Which you know, I used to watch this show back in the day, a long time ago, called Cops. And the show Cops, they go around and pick up criminals. And I remember watching this, I remember this, this one episode so vividly, this one guy, he was on LSD. It's a drug. And he was so strong and so empowered, they put him in the back of the police car, and he broke the handcuffs off, and he took his bare feet and busted out the back window. He was so strong, and it reminds me of what's happened with this guy here. He's so strong, he's just breaking these chains off. Maybe there was drugs involved, I don't know, but, but, but the guy, you know, drugs in the Greek comes from pharmakia, and it's always translated into the English Bible as a sorcery, or witchcraft, or magic. So when you're taking drugs, there's some kind of demonic thing involved there. Maybe that guy in that video I saw, the cops video, maybe he was demon-possessed somehow. That's the same thing I see with this guy. He could break chains, things like superhuman strength, things that we normally can't do if we didn't have this demon inside of us, giving us this extra strength. And the other details you saw that were different, or added details. Sarah? That Jesus didn't say go. Okay, he didn't say go. He just permitted him. That's right. Very good. Anything else? He asked for his name. He asked for his name. And what was his name, Daniel? Legion. Legion. For there are many of them. So this man was possessed with many demons. A whole legion of demons. Okay? Anything else? There's one important detail at the very beginning. Of it, that's not a uh, that wasn't mentioned yet. That's right, Gadarenes or Gergesenes. Yes, two different towns there. That's good. So that that's that's one thing I was talking about. And one detail I had from Mark here that we didn't go to. This extra two details I would add. Mark five five says that the man was cutting himself with stones. Another sign of demonic possession is that people will cut themselves. Self-mutilation. I've seen this before myself. The lady that we knew, remember her, Angela, Nazarene Church, she would cut herself. And she had some demons, and we, we actually came over to our friend's house one night, we, we had a kind of a service to kind of cast demons out of her, but she, she didn't want to let go of them. She held on to them. If someone doesn't want to let go of the demons, it ain't coming out. So the person has to be willing to give it. And then also in, uh, in Mark 5 and verse 13, there were 2,000 swine. So it's possible this man had 2,000 demons in him. It's quite possible. All, all 2,000 swine went down the cliff. Okay? You had another one back there? In Matthew, it doesn't say that he Okay. It doesn't say he returned to the house and went to preach. That's right. Very good. And this whole thing about him being there. I'm sorry. Thank you. Go ahead. And another one is that he would... The man who was telling them the country and the city, he, it says in Matthew, he kept them, but this one says he fed when he was feeding them. Oh, okay. Very good. That's very specific detail. I'm glad very you detail. picked that out there. That was good. Yeah? The one that kind of stood out for me was that he was now in his right mind. I don't think that's told there in, in Matthew. Matthew. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, uh, and they were afraid. People who saw this were afraid of this because they knew how he was. Right. Now they're seeing him clothed. He's in his right mind, a completely changed person. Right. Yeah, Matthew doesn't say that he was naked. Okay. Uh, Luke does say that. And it says now he was fully clothed in his right mind, sitting where? Where he belongs, at the feet of Jesus. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Which was at the feet of Jesus and Mary and Martha? Mary. And what's Martha doing? Working. Working. Jesus, tell Mary to work with me. And Jesus said, no. She's taking the better position. Feet of Jesus. So all new believers need to learn this, man. You need to get a prayer life. At the feet of Jesus. Stay there. Listen to Him. Speak to Him. Let Him speak to you. Let Him bless you spiritually. He will. That's a good place to be. Okay, so we ha I think we have some things to reconcile here. Some of the things we, we talked about were just added details. It's no big deal. There's a couple things we need to reconcile here. Now, what to do is I want to go back to your maps in the back of your Bible. Most of you are going to have maps back there. Okay. And there's going to be a map back there. It's going to be called the Ministry of Jesus.
Okay? And in the map, the ministry of Jesus, you'll see the Sea of Galilee towards the top and the Dead Sea towards the bottom. And you'll see the Jordan River in between. It might not be called that in your Bible, maybe called something else, but you want to find a map that's towards the back that's going to say, going to have the ministry of Jesus on it. It's going to have a picture of the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea towards the bottom of the page. Everybody there? Give me a second to find that. Okay, that's good too. Uh, the Holy Land during the time of Jesus, or Palestine during the time of Jesus, I might say that too. Okay, so what are you going to see? Uh, you see the Sea of Galilee towards the top. You want more here, Malachi? Okay, look on it with me. And uh, to the eastern part of the Sea of Galilee, you see a town called Gergesa. You see that? It's going to be. If you don't see it, you see where Bethsaida is, the top of the Sea of Galilee. If you go around the Sea of Galilee, maybe like uh, maybe four miles, five miles from Bethsaida, you see Gergesa on the eastern coast of Galilee. It'll probably be, if you see um, Genesra on the other side, is it, or Capernaum on the other side, uh, you'll see, if you if you were to go diagonally down in, southeast from Capernaum, you'd find your guess there, even if it's not on your map right now, okay? Um, and if you go, and you, do you see a river below the Sea of Galilee? Beside the Jordan River, it goes out to the east, it's called the Yannick River. Okay, right below that would be Gadara, which is where the Gadarenes are. Okay, so you have this area between Gergesa and the Gadarenes. Now, what I'm going to tell you is, well, this is what I think happened. Okay, now I don't know for sure because we have we have details here. I think Jesus went from Capernaum, which is where he was, across to Gergesa, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and then he traveled from there in between Gergesa and Gadara. Okay, so he's somewhere in this region. If you, if it, if your map is topographical, it means it shows mountains there. You'll see on the southeastern coast of Galilee, you see mountains there. You'll see a kind of topographical range there. That's the mountains I believe the swan fell off of into the Sea of Galilee. Okay? So to kind of give you a picture of what we're talking about here, what Jesus is dealing with. So this, this region here, and even the sea itself, we talk about all the different names it's called. It's called the Sea of Tiberias. If you look at the, uh, the southwestern part of, of the sea, you see Tiberias there. Okay? And um, on the western, the, the part of the uh, Sea of Galilee, the southwestern part, you see Tiberias there. You see Genesaret to the northeastern, northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee is even called different names because of towns that are around it. So this area that Jesus was in could have been called Gergesides and could have been called Gadarenes. He's in this area right in between the two towns. Okay? Now here's one problem we're going to find with, if you're using the NIV or NASB, or something that comes from a different manuscript family than the manuscript family behind the King James and New King James. Okay? You can go back over there, boy. Um, let's go back to, uh, you might have a footnote here. Let's go back to Luke, chapter 8. And if you have a New King James like I do, you're, you're probably going to have a footnote there. And the footnote, and keep your finger on the map if you don't mind. And the footnote is going to say, for verse 26 of Luke 8, where it says Gadarenes, sit up, son. Where it says Gadarenes, it'll say uh, Gerasenes. Okay? Now this is one of the, this is going to be a good proof here to show that NIV and the manuscripts behind it have become corrupt. Okay, Gerasenes. Let's go back to the map one more time here, and I'm going to show you where Gerasenes is and how this could be impossible. That this is what Jesus originally said. Gerasenes. You go back to your map. You'll find a place called Perea. It's just north of just northeast of the Dead Sea. Okay, do you see that there? Does anyone have a problem seeing that? North, uh, northeast of the Dead Sea. Um, what do you see northeast of the Dead Sea? Tell me a city you see there, brother. Uh, that would be Philadelphia? Northeast? Of the Dead Sea? That's the, where the, the, it's called the Salt Sea, right? Yeah, Salt Sea. Right. Okay. Northeast Perea. That's the region of Perea. Okay, Perea. So you see the region of Perea there? Uh, just okay, yeah, Perea. north of the region of Perea, Perea would be where uh, Gerasenes would be. Garasa. Right? Yeah, Garasa. Okay. That's what it would be called, Garasa. If you have Garasa in your mouth, that's what it's talking about. That is between 30 and 40 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. Right. And the problem with that is, it says that, the, that these swine ran immediately into the lake or into the sea. So did Jesus sit by and, and watch him run 33 miles into the sea? 
No, that's not the way it works. Now, the uh, the Gadara is which where Gadarenes are, which is just southeast of the Sea of Galilee. It's about five, to, about three to five miles from the sea, and Gergesa is right on the sea. So in between there, these these cliffs, they have a steep drop off, like probably two hundred feet. I think is what I read. Two hundred foot drop off. So if swine were in that area where this mountain, this region is, they would have ran off the cliff right into the sea, right there. So this tells me that the, the manuscripts behind the NIV, the NASB, etc., when they say in Luke 8, 26, uh, Gerasene, which is Gerasa, on the map there, does the same thing in Mark 2. Mark does the same thing for Mark 5. It tells me that their manuscript had become corrupt. There's no way it could have meant that. Gergesenes, no problem. Gadarenes, no problem. Gerasenes, problem. It gives me another reason to reject the manuscripts behind the NIV, the NASB, all the other newer versions here. Okay? Does that make sense to everybody? Yes. Okay. Good. Let's go back to Matthew. I, I guess I'll, I'll say it for the end. Not bad, brother. Well, KJVO, I just kind of on my head right now anyway. But yeah. So, <clears throat> the KJV and the NKJV are drawn from the same family of manuscripts, uh-huh. right? And yet there's there's some marked differences between those two translations. And of course the, the KJVO folks are claiming they have the perfect Bible right. and there's no errors. And uh, that's exactly what God said, it's inspired translation and and they're pointing to the NKJV and saying, Look, here's the differences and that can't be true. And well, the whole problem with, and I went, I talked with this with, with like Brent and all them, and I consider them brothers. I think they're wrong on this issue. But when it came down to a gentleman I was discussing with him, is that his King James Version only position is not an empirical position where he decided it out and said, well, I think this is the right position. It's a, it's a presuppositional position. Now, he, he did admit that to me. He said that I, by faith, I'm, by faith, I'm, I'm taking this out. Here's, the, here's the problem, though, John, with that, is that I can take God as a presupposition to everything else because it's needed to know everything, to know anything. I don't have to have a presupposition of the King James being the only Word of God to have the Word of God in my possession. My presupposition is God has preserved a certain text, not a certain translation. I don't think God inspires translators. He inspired the original writings. In Greek, and he's preserved those writings to this day. Now, I think the manuscript family behind the New King James and the King James are the inspired, preserved Word of God. He's, he's preserved those manuscripts to this day. He's but yes, or the not, translations. Not, no, or the, not the what is contained in those manuscripts, not the original manuscripts. You don't have original manuscripts, right, 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 right. but what is contained in those manuscripts has been preserved to this day. The words of that. Okay, so. That's why we can go to the King James and say, well, they translated Hades as hell and Gehenna as hell. I, that's a bad translation. That's why we can go to say, listen, some of the language they're using here, English language here, is kind of outdated. I have to have a 17th century dictionary to understand what some of these words are. Uh, that's why I can say, and I don't care what they say about this, I don't like the these and thous. I'll be my like it. That's fine. If they like it, then they can, keep, they can stick with it. That's their preference. Um, but I've looked at these comparisons they do, and it's begging the question, because they say King, they're exalting King James of the Standard presuppositionally. Right. And anything compared to that, therefore, must be wrong. Right. But that's not my position. And they've given me no reason to have the King James as their presupposition, besides the fact they think they need to have an inspired translation. Well, where does that come from? Who says we need to have an inspired translation? It doesn't say that anywhere. He's preserved the Word of God. And I think in the English language, I think the closest to the, the Greek and Hebrew is the New King James, from my personal study. I think the King James is probably next. The King James is probably next because it comes from the right manuscripts. But I personally don't like it because of the, it's a it's a Elizabethan language, and they have their preference to like it. That's fine. But I mean, I don't get caught up in these these arguments then because I know after arguing a couple times on this issue, it's not going to get anywhere because it's their presupposition. Now see, if someone comes to me and talks about atheism and stuff like that, I can argue with them presuppositionally because you have to have God to know anything. But I don't have to have the King James as the literal, translated, inspired word of God to know everything. 
And you know, if you were even, I was, I was looking through CBD.com, ChristianBookDistributors.com, recently. I buy a couple things on there, and they have the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible, which was a big deal on Facebook. You know? Right, and, but they're they're saying that they, they have the original 1611 that they give to you, and it has the original preface and introduction from the translators. And if you were to read that, they don't even believe what the King James only guys believe. So you have to have the King and Old guys being the, king, the people who translate the King James into what it is in English from the Greek and Hebrew. They're inspired without even knowing it. In fact, not even they don't know it, they say they're not inspired, but they are. So, you, I mean, there's so many problems that it's not even funny. So I, I don't think their, their arguments hold up. But at the same time, what, I think what we're going to find here, John, that we've experienced this with open-air preaching, too, is that we start to say you should preach on love. They think you're a pansy preacher now. You don't preach on rebuking and, and you don't preach hard anymore, preach on hell and judgment. No, I preach those things. See, you're trying to lump me into a group here. Same thing the King and all the people. They say, well, you're you believe in the textual critics, you're you're part of the newer, you know, a newer version people, you're the corrupt word of God. No, I'm not in that group either. Bible corrupter. You, you're you're exalting a false dilemma here. Either King is only or everything else. No, there's another group here. Same thing with open air preaching. I'm not only hellfire only or love only, I'm in between I'm in the biblical middle. Where I need to be. So when it comes to these issues, I mean, I find they're trying to pigeonhole me. So I, I don't want to get in an argument with them about this issue. If they want to, hey, I have no problem with the King James Bible. I don't prefer it though. And I, I've looked at these problems they've said, and actually the problems, like the, the whole hell thing, or translated Hayes, they'll say it's some kind of pagan mythology thing creeping into New King James. No, it's actually a better translation. It's a completely different place. And it explains so many issues that we that can't be explained by their view. Right, and I talked with Brett about it. He even, he even admitted that. Well, then, Brett, isn't your, isn't your Bible not perfect then? Because he told me he'd go back to the Greek and see Hades there. Well, I thought your Bible was perfect. Why do you have to go back to the Greek if, it, if the Bible's perfect? If your English translation is perfect? Why are you going back to the Greek at all? But some of them will do that. Well, if, you're, if your English version is perfect, why do you need to do that? So... But I, I think what we can point out here by looking at the other, because mine has the footnotes for the text family, textual family behind the newer NIV, ESV, NASB, and they say Gerasenes in Mark and in Luke, which is impossible in my mind. Those swine did not run 30 something miles geographically. geographically and fall off a cliff into the sea. Right. Yeah. Not immediately. Not immediately? No. So where do you think that came from? I mean, where do you get that idea? Is that well, um, I don't know how it became corrupted. It could have been, a, it, there, in the Greek, there isn't much change in the letter. There could have been a couple letters that were changed accidentally or, or on purpose. I don't know. Whether the corruption was accidental or purpose means no difference to me. The problem is, it's been corrupted. And it gives me no reason to trust that, that textual family. So, yeah, but, go ahead. I'm sorry, I just want to make this a quick point. The thing about the Bible is that for those that are being honest and forthright about all these different things that are happening over the centuries with the Bible and coming to it and saying, listen, how many people have sincerely wanted to understand and know the truths in the Bible and pass them along without interfering, without injecting or extracting, because obviously Jesus gives us the admonition in the last few verses of the Bible, uh, and uh, those that God is able to deliver his word to whatever language uh, in the translation his spirit's able to teach even if there's an issue. Yeah. Even if there's a, a little issue about a few letters being changed in the Greek. Right. God's still able to teach them about the most important part of the gospel which yeah. is Christ. Right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when I was a new Christian for the first five years, so I used NIV. And then for a while I used NSB. So God can That's use right. it. But the question is, as we're searching out the truth and refining the truth, and we see this is a corrupted textual family, should we continue to accept it or reject it? Not that we're saying people who use NIV, they're going to hell, or they're, you know, we would, we would just reveal the truth to them and speak to them and say, listen, this is a better, there's a better, you know, textual family here. You need to be using this, and this is, this is from a better, so you can translate better from this. Uh, so that, that's what I would point out. But let me just point out a couple more things here in, in this passage here. And so we see two men and one man. Okay, well, here's how I reconcile that. Maybe in Mark and in Luke, there was one man who spoke up more than anyone else, and one man who was worse off than the other man. 
I mean, that's why uh, Mark and Luke both focused on him, because he was worse off uh, than the other guy. And um, but that just because Mark and Luke record one guy does not mean there wasn't another guy there. He simply omitted information. Just like when we went to Luke a minute ago to look at the what Jesus said after he said, "Let the dead bury their own dead." But you go preach the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean Jesus didn't say that. It just means Matthew didn't include that information. And God did that for a reason. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they they they, they come together very nicely. They harmonize very nicely. Just like when Kevin and Daniel are playing guitar together. And they're on when they're harmonized, they're going together, you can hear it. If one of them gets off a little bit, you can hear it. It's not possible it to be two separate events, I don't think. No, I don't think so. Too much details are, are right. coinciding. Yeah, I don't think it's separate events at all. Two separate events. It could be one that was willing to be delivered. It could be one that was willing to be delivered. Um, it, uh, let's see, what does it say at the end of Matthew here? It says... Yeah, it doesn't say that, uh, that only... It doesn't say that both of them were delivered in Matthew, so it is possible that both came and then one went away. 133, it does say uh, they told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Well, men's in italics there. Oh. That's not in the Greek. Oh, okay. So it says, it would actually, what it would say in verse 33, that those who kept fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had to the demon-possessed. Ah. Yeah. Okay. That so sense. that was what it would literally say in the Greek. So the, the, the translators put words in there in English sometimes to help it flow better. Sometimes yeah. they shouldn't do that. So, but it, so it wouldn't. Men there obviously is plural, but that's not in the Greek. So, so maybe, maybe that maybe there was just one man who was healed. We don't know. But we do know that Mark and, and Luke only talk about one man. But it doesn't mean there wasn't another man there. Okay. See, and, and this is it's so interesting because the skeptics, the scoffers, the atheists will point to verses like these. Say there's a contradiction. And say, look, say the Bible can't be true. Mm -hmm. It's almost like God allows these kind of uh, accounts to you know, speak in, in, in parables that we might seek and understand clearly. And for the scoffer who wants to delude himself with his mockery, right. continue on the way he wants to go without right. violating his will. Right. Yeah, as a whole, when you're looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospel. This means they're giving the synopsis of the same thing. They mostly have the same stories in them. As a general rule, Mark gives more details than anybody else. He'll tell you he's cutting himself with stones. He'll tell you there was 2,000 swan. Matthew and Luke aren't doing that. Matthew gives the, usually the least amount of details between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but he has the most stories. He has more parables and stories than anybody else. Okay, so that, that's the general rule. That's what you're going to see as you're going along. So that, that God, I think God is using their personalities to deliver the truth through them. But he's doing it in different ways. But it's still the truth. And this this is called theologically called telescoping. Okay? You put a telescope, you look at the sky at night, you see stars, you see the moon. Get a telescope out, what do you see? You get it in more detail. It goes up closer. So Mark, he telescopes a lot. He gives more detail. But it doesn't mean there's a contradiction between them. So Mark and Luke chose to focus on one guy. It's one guy who was delivered. Doesn't mean the other guy wasn't delivered. He might have been, he might have not have been. We don't really know. It doesn't tell us. And we can't make a doctrine from silence and say there's a contradiction here. So, so there was a... And then it says in... Uh, one thing I want to point out here in verse 20 says that they were coming out of the tombs. Now what were tombs used for? They're like playing around in the graveyard. And demon demons and demons, people, they are infatuated with death a lot of times. If you ever watched, they sold their souls for rock and roll. A lot of people are infatuated with death, man. There's this one group I used to listen to, back, and I didn't listen to them very much. I didn't have only other CDs, but my friend, I, I like listening to them. It's called the Insane Clown Posse. And they, they paint themselves like skeletons, and they're infatuated with death. They're infatuated. So demons are infatuated. They're, they're bringing these men to these tombs to hang out in great orders. And they even are trying to kill them, cut themselves with stones. They want them to die. So what happened if those men die in that, that state? What the hell? Praise God, Jesus came along and delivered them. You know, in verse 29, demons said, Have you come here to torment us before the time? So even they knew it wasn't the time yet. And they knew what was awaiting them. 
torment. They knew it was awaiting them. And in verse 30, I think this, this verse 30 kind of gives credence to my being between, that Jesus is in this region between these two cities, or Gessenes and uh, Gadarenes. It says in verse 30, Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of swine feeding. They could see them, but it was a good way off from them. So it, it could have been that they were closer to, to Gergesenes, but the, but the swine were over by the, closer to the Gadarenes. And then they ran towards a cliff and fell off. So that could be a possibility too. But there's no way they saw 35 miles to the south of them to uh, Garessa and saw the swine coming. Okay? <coughs> and uh, here, here's uh, an interesting fact that I think Jesus may be, may be using some humor here. Um, is it lawful for a Jew to have swine? Is it lawful for them to raise swine? To eat swine? Well, then I think these people rightly deserve what they got, didn't they? Even though it was two thousand, I mean, can you imagine having two thousand swine in the backyard and they all just die at one time? Man, that would hurt your 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 money making. You know, whatever you're trying to do with these pigs, it would hurt. Lots of bacon down the drain, you know. Uh, but uh, and lots of sauces too. No bacon or sauces for breakfast for a while. But but Jesus, they had no right to have these swine. They were Jews, so he he helped them out. He took care of them for them. Okay, and uh, they they knew they were in trouble, and um, and look what happened in verse in verse thirty four. So they they begged him to depart from their region, and that that word region there gives more credence to what I'm saying here between these two cities. It's a region they're talking about here, not just one town they're in, but they're in a region here. And uh, this happens a lot of times in the open air. Leave, get out of here. We don't want you here because they love their sin, their pig raising. Whatever else they're involved in, they, they didn't even care how these men were delivered. They weren't rejoicing over it. All they were fearful was, he killed our pigs, we're in trouble. We don't want this guy here. Get him out of here. Yeah, they, they, they're sin, they love their sin more than they love their souls. That's the way most people are, unfortunately. They love their sin more than they love their souls. And, and when you go back, if we we're going back to the Luke Gospel for a second here, and this is the last thing I'll say here and, we'll be, and I'll be done is uh, this man wanted to go back with Jesus. And Jesus told him no. And what did he tell him to go do? Preach. preach. So can new converts preach? Should they preach? At the least, what they can preach is what Jesus said in, in verse 39. What great things Jesus had done for him. The least you can say if you're a Christian is your testimony. What great things God has done for me. You don't have to give an hour sermon. You don't have to say lots of things. Just give your testimony. That's the least you can do. That's the least all of us can do. If we've been saved, we can tell others, look what God's done for me. He can do it for you too. He didn't tell them to go preach a five-point sermon on hell or expound on sin, righteousness, and judgment. He just told them to go tell them what Jesus did for him. And every believer, even if they're one minute old, can do that. Jesus didn't say, okay, you need to go to seminary first. You need to go through a discipleship course for a couple months. And then you can start talking to lost sinners. No, he went and told his whole city what Jesus had done for him. Yeah. That's a real convert right there. Not a town, not a village, a city. The whole city. Yeah. He went and became a street preacher that day. A new one was born. And if someone gets saved, God forbid, I forbid them, and listen, no, you're not mature enough yet. You kind of wait around a little bit for a while. We'll go see something to do a Touch It 101 course, an open-air preaching course, a friendship evangelism course, and then you can go witness. No. If you know what Jesus has done for you, you can tell others. And it may take a little boldness, it may take a little courage, it may take a little, but Jesus, please help me. I can't do this on my own strength. Praise God, but you need to be anyway. But you can do it. Because he commands you to do it. When he commands you to do, he gives you the ability to do it. With his strength. Alright, well that's all I wanted to uh, say, I think, from that passage. Uh, you guys have, we talked about a little bit of things along the way here. But you have things you want to add or questions you want to ask? I wanted to go back to the, the kind of geographical, topographical thing here. With okay. You said the area of the, the Gatter, uh, Gatteria was just... North of the Yarm Yarmuk River. Right? Uh, the Yarmuk the Yarmuk River is just south and southeast of the Sea of Galilee. 
Right. And Gadara would be just south of that. Gadara would just be south of that. Just be south of that. So Gadara is between three to five miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. But you see where Gadara would be uh, and where Gergesa is, which is on the... Um, have you, is Tiberius on your on your map there? The Sea of Galilee? No, Tiberius. This is a very poor map. Yeah. yeah. Oh, do you, do you see where the region of Galilee is to the to the west of this Sea of Galilee? Yes, I see the region of Galilee. Okay, if you were to go almost directly east of that, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee would be where Gergesa is. So if you want to even put a little point there if you want. It would be right on the sea. Right. And, and you'll even see a little mountain range starting there. And it'll go around all the way to the Yarmouk River. A little topographical range there. Yeah, you said Gargessa or Gargessa was a couple three miles southeast of the city, right? Um, yes, yes, yeah, probably a couple miles, maybe three miles along the coast. Yeah, along the coast, south of Bethsaida. So, right in there somewhere. So between Gargessa and Gadara, there'd be about you know five six miles, something like that between them. Okay. And but in between them there, uh, and Gadara is just south of the Yarmouk River. You can see between the Yarmouk River and your guess, you see there's a mountain range there, or little hills there, right along the Sea of Galilee, yeah, the southeastern part. And that's where the pigs would have fallen off into the sea. Right. And from what I understand by reading about this Sea of Galilee region, there's about a 20-mile, uh, 20-mile, 200-foot cliff right there dropping right off to the sea. So that would be a perfect spot in my mind by reading the story of where they would have dropped off. Uh, in my map here, it has a question mark next to Gatara. And then south, you know, even more south towards the Dead Sea, uh -huh. in that region of Korea. Right. There's another Gadara with a question mark. Does yours have that? No, mine has Ghidorah in Korea. Mine has it says Philadelphia. You see Philadelphia in Korea. No Philadelphia, no. Okay, so I, I think I think I know why it's doing that because they're, what what the, the textual critics are doing here, the ones who are behind the the newer uh, or the the textual family behind the NIV, the NASB, etc. They're trying to say there was only like a little bit of a thing wrong in the in the writing of the the thing. So they're, they're assuming that it's okay to have problems in the text. No problem with having a, a letter here wrong and a letter here wrong. And uh, they're gonna they're gonna try to say that Garassa and Gadara are the same place. Yeah, like they don't know. Like well, they don't this know is where New it is. King James, though. Yeah. It's New King James. So. Well, I mean, even the New King James, they'll, they'll give them textual notes on what the other text says. So they're just giving you all the information, let you decide for yourself. So they're throwing the question marks there. Right, right. But at all different places to say maybe we don't know where this is at really, or right. Well, I, I mean, I, when I read about Gadara, there was no question about that. Okay. When I was studying about that, um, Gesera is that is that there too? Uh, Garasa, you mean? Yeah, Garasa. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, that's there, but yeah. it's not a question mark. No question mark there. Just Gadara has two two different. You know, if they put Gadara down there, how is the, how are the pigs going to run from Gadara all the way up to Sea of Galilee, 35 miles away? And how are you even going to see it? They should just hit, go south to the Dead Sea. Then. Right. And, and they wouldn't drown there, they'd float. You can't drown in the Dead Sea. It has so much salt that you can't drown in it. You can I mean, walk on water. You go to the Dead Sea. You, I mean, you ever tried laying back and floating in a pool? And I mean, Dead Sea is 100 times worse. You're just sitting there on top of water because it's so much salt in there, the saltiest sea in the world. No, nothing can live there. Fish can't even live there. You sit on the top of the sea. That's why it's called a dead sea. Nothing lives in there. She just sit on top of there floating. So they wouldn't even die there. Yeah, that wouldn't have been the one to run them off into. The Lord, the Lord obviously knew that they would float there. He wouldn't run them off into that. Right, he wouldn't run them off into that. I'm trying to, to in my mind, picturing 2,000 pigs pointing in the dead sea. Floating around. You know, the dead sea can't do anything. Is that pretty funny, Malachi? Yeah. That's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's going, he can't stop. Uh, I, I had a, uh, a thought about the, um, the this demon-possessed man, and the Lord tells him to go and proclaim what great things the Lord has done for you. Basically, right. you're just sharing your testimony. Right. He, he obviously knows what, is, what the Lord's done for him. And most other people and probably know, too, by knowing it. Everyone that's been saved knows what the Lord's done for me. They know right. that much. Right. Otherwise, they're not saved. You know? And not only that, just to... Can I just interrupt you for a second there? Everybody around him would know too. Because mm -hmm. remember, they couldn't even pass through that region because it was so dangerous to go yeah. past him. Yeah. So they would know this man, he was naked and cutting himself and breaking chains and he couldn't even pass by him. He's fully clothed in his right mind, he's preaching the word of God. Yeah. 
there had to have been people saved in that city. Yeah, I'm sure there probably you know was. I mean? Yeah, Lord, no doubt in my mind. But I was thinking that it's you know probably good that a new when we're if you're newly saved to not preach too many things right. more than that. Right. Because That's a good point. there's a warning in Scripture for the new convert right. that to not be a teacher. Right. Lest he be puffed up and right. fall into the same condemnation of the devil. That's a good point. And so, yeah. so it's probably a good thing that the Lord just, you know, you see this man is just told to go and proclaim what has been done for you, right. your testimony, right. not to give a whole exposition on, you know, everything else, or yeah. preach a lot more than that because you could be puffed up with pride. And we've seen a, we've seen a brother that, unfortunately, that happened to, mm. um, young in the faith. Um, he was okay when he's doing one-on-one -on -one and and uh, you know just giving out tracks and but he he stepped up and started preaching and he got prideful mm. he got full of pride and and uh, and then he fell huh. he fell he fell from the Lord and he yeah. fell into he fell into demonic stuff wow. really demonic stuff and he got puffed up with uh, pride and he started started uh, going following these prophet prophets laying their hands on him and doing the shaking around and doing all kinds of weird stuff now. Wanted more and more. Yeah, more and more. And he, he got puffed up with pride, you know, and it was, it was, and it, it and I, I think about that and I think it was shortly after he started, he, he wanted to step up and preach right. in the open air. Right. And he was young. Yeah. His preaching was out of order. And his too. preaching was, was out of order, and he got pride, he got so puffed up when he was preaching, prideful and angry and all kinds of stuff, rebuking yeah. and and it was out of order. It right. was totally out of order. It's like wow. Yeah. Well, he wasn't like that before he before he started preaching. Yeah, that can happen. And so he'd have been done done better just to share his testimony. Right. You know what I mean? That's yeah. to try to preach on all kinds of stuff. Yeah, we should only that. Yeah. at all times we should only preach what we know of. If we don't know about something, someone actually question, we shouldn't just make things up and act like we have an answer to it. We should only preach what we know. Mm -hmm. If we stick to that, we'll be fine. Yeah. Our, our sermons might be shorter, yeah. but that's okay. Yeah. You know, my sermon is back six years ago when I first started, a lot shorter than they are now. Yeah. And I'm preaching open air. But how, hopefully, in the last six years, I've learned a lot more and I have a lot more material to preach on. That's right. You're staying in, in step with the Spirit that right. way. Getting puffed up with yourself and right. uh, probably comes before a fall. So, uh, but I just I just thought that that's that's so, good. Man. That's a good good warning and balance there that that new people shouldn't be giving you know long theological discourses on things they know nothing about yeah. uh, because they might be drawing from things they thought they knew from before they were a Christian but they really don't know that need to change. Mm -hmm.